0: This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. If a Democrat or a Republican has control of Congress, like if the Speaker of the House is a Democrat or Republican, we believe that that matters enough for us to endorse somebody who isn't 100% aligned or may not be very much aligned because on top of electing People who are WFP champions and come through our pipeline, a strategic imperative is depriving go- Republicans from governing power.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Hegemonicon. Over these next couple weeks, we'll be landing the plane of our series on what we're building. Last week, we spoke with Ashik Sadiq and Megan Romer of DSA, the largest socialist mass organization in the United States and an organization that aspires to become a mass political party of the working class. This week, I'm speaking with the director of another organization that has won major victories in the political arena and which aims to become the leading political home for U.S. progressives. I'm very honored to be joined by Maurice Mitchell, the national director of the Working Families Party. Maurice, thank you so much for being here. Let's just begin by having you introduce yourself and uh, sharing a bit about you and how you ended up in your current role.
0: Sure. Uh, Well, it's really good to be here. And, um, you know, um, our relationship predates this show, so it's just really great to see you and uh, looking forward to the conversation. So just a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up on Long Island, on the south shore of Long Island, in uh, a Caribbean immigrant household. Both of my parents were, were union members, my levi- my, uh, my mom was an 1199 um, nurse uh, in Far Rockaway. Uh, my family came here through my grandmother, who came here during the 60s and worked as a domestic worker. And a lot of who I am and how I think about the world has been really shaped by my family and my family's experience. Uh, and my experience in this is sort of uh, extended family of a lot of aunties and uncles and cousins uh, growing up in the 80s and 90s. And uh, you know, also, you know, my my mom's from Trinidad, my dad is from Grenada. I, I was born when Grenada wasn't Grenada's a tiny island nation of no more than a hundred thousand people. but when I when I was born, Grenada was an independent black Socialist Republic. Mm-hmm. and Grenadians were very, very proud of their country. And uh, very, very proud of the New Jewel movement and Maurice Bishop and a lot of the really remarkable reforms and changes that happened in those few years. And then the unfortunate uh, collapse of of that of that um, movement. Um, And uh, I started off youth organizing when I was pretty young. Uh, My first my first sort of volunteer campaign effort happened when I was in middle school. Um, you know, I, my first organizing campaign was in middle school and high school on, on capital punishment. I went on to do campus-based organizing at Howard University. And that brought me into a lot of work around the criminal legal system. My first direct action was a direct action at the Department of Justice after one of our classmates, Prince Jones Jr., was killed by an undercover police officer. Um, eventually, I left campus and I went back home and I did grassroots organizing on the hyper-local level for around seven years, working on a, a number of issues um, at a very, very small under-resourced organization on Long Island, working on educational equity and working on environmental justice and tax fairness and working to build bases of power across Long Island. It's a really big region, and I was the only organizer initially and had to work to build a local organization with very very, limited resources and capacity and and just kind of had to sink or swim. Um, then eventually, once I hit some barriers, like the limitations of what you could do on the hyper-local hyper level, working with community members... Uh, and it's mainly in working class communities of color across Long Island, I got involved in the electoral side of the struggle so that we could create more space for our bases of power to be able to advance our agenda. And I was working on legislative races and eventually was part of the coalition that uh, worked to flip, initially flip the state legislature, the state senate, in New York from red to blue so that we could pass some pretty groundbreaking legislation. And uh, eventually I started doing regional and statewide work. I helped I helped to launch a statewide collaborative that worked on civic engagement work um, with a number of organizations up and down uh, New York. And, um, and while I was doing that, I also did a lot of movement work outside of some of the, the work that I did that was more structured organizing. Uh, you know, I was involved in a, a chapter member of Critical Resistance, which um, really, like, created a lot of the, the intellectual and organizing sort of um, infrastructure around what is now, right. like, the abolitionist movement. Before it was I was involved in Malcolm X. Grassroots Movement um, and uh, did a lot of work with Malcolm X. Grassroots Movement for many, uh, for many years. And uh, uh, I worked with the People's Self-Defense Project, which was the Cop Watch uh project in Malcolm X. grassroots movement. I'm very proud of that work. And so I was always doing sort of movement work as well as more structured work. And um, in, 20, um, in 2013, when Trayvon was killed, I organized mass mobilizations in New York, and I was really struck by the limitations of those mobilizations and the fact that, you know, people hit the streets, but his family didn't experience justice. And in 2014, when Michael Brown was murdered, I remember after that feeling really compelled to do more and to really lean in. So in 2015, when Micah Brown was murdered, I really leaned in and I, um, I found myself working very closely and embedding inside of the Organization for Black Struggle uh, in St. Louis. And I left the work that I was doing in New York, I left my family, my job, uh, my community, um, uh, my apartment, I packed it up and I embedded uh, on the ground in St. Louis at what would be ground zero for the movement wave that we now talk, talk, talk to, and re- talk about, and refer to as the movement for Black Lives, um, and I was, you know, in the early moments, maybe like a week or two after Michael Brown was killed, when, and I was just so blown away and inspired by the people of Ferguson and the people of St. Louis um, who had responded to Michael Brown's murder with just like uncommon. Bravery and valor, and really, I think, transformed my life um, and transformed the lives of many, many other people. And I and uh, a number of folks helped to build the what would the nucleus of what would become the movement for Black Lives, and scale that over a few years to become a, an international movement. And in 2016, um, my you know, at the same time that we're scaling the movement for Black Lives. Donald Trump rode this white Christian nationalist wave to the white house. And I think for a number of us, um, it was a very humbling moment. Um, and I didn't like, I didn't anticipate that Trump would win. I wasn't one of those like soothsayers that I, 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 I couldn't imagine a world. I grew up in New York. So I grew up with Trump being Trump.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. So I I couldn't imagine how he could actually.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, Uh, But he did. He did win. And I think my assessment was that we had to engage in the electoral front of the struggle. We had to take it seriously. And we had to approach elections, even in the unsatisfying rigid two-party system and with unsatisfying choices, usually at the presidential level. We, as social movements on the left, had to Engage that and have a say at, as to what we thought was the better of binary choices, and um, and that it it wasn't true um, that two choices that are significantly different, but maybe not our choice, were the mm-hmm. same. <laughs> that's actually mm-hmm. not true, and it's important that we that we say that. It's like nuance is our friend, and we're leaving power on the table. And so I started to develop projects with folks in the movement for black lives, like the electoral justice project. I just came back from the 10 year movement for black lives membership wow, convening. Weird. And it was it was just very satisfying to, in Atlanta. And it was satisfying to see the electoral justice project and what it's become. Um, but I was one of the folks who started to, to develop that. And when Dan Cantor, who's my predecessor, when he announced that he was leaving, I was organized to um, approach taking on the challenge of of leading WFP in this political moment. And that was in 2018, I've been at WFP for for now more than five years. And the thing that I think brought me to WFP was, you know, I've had this like these varied experiences from doing structured organizing on the hyper local to statewide level, from, from doing inside outside sort of work in New York State and the legislature, doing electoral work on the local and statewide level um, and eventually being at the ground level of a social movement and catalyzing it to become um, to become a force. And you know leaving leaving each one of those experiences, I noticed like the the impact, and the power of particular tactics, but also the limitations. And I definitely coming out of the 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 movement for Black Lives experience, I noticed the social movements where the, when they're at their very best, they're able to you know, and it's almost like cliche people talk about the Overton window, but the, it's true. Like you're you're able to surface these contradictions that that are present, but just most people aren't really paying attention to or are grown to accept these as just features of their day to day lives and social movements could surface those contradictions and have everybody look at them in new ways and call really big questions. And I saw that happen. But what I also learned was that social movements didn't necessarily have the the capacity to answer those questions or to resolve those contradictions. And the most organized forces will attempt to resolve the contradictions and answer the questions that are pre- presented by social movements. And, you know, like Taser International, right, is an example. They, you know, they um, their main product were, were, were tasers, like these non-lethal weapons, but they also marketed mm-hmm. body cameras and they offer that as the solution. Like that was going to reduce, significantly reduce the extrajudicial killing mm-hmm. of black folks, right? Now, fast forward a decade, yeah, there's body cameras everywhere. Like they, that was capital's response. Yeah. And, you know, in, in some ways we created a market, right? And they answered, uh, but we still don't have lasting, uh, a, a lasting sort of uh, response that is a movement response to the crisis of Black people dying every single day. And so I wanted to, like, we need the essential movement power, but we also need to answer the question. And for me, that lies in governing like our movement needs to govern then our like then social movements that are aligned with us can push the window call the question and then movement aligned elected officials in governing governing positions could secure victories that are aligned with the movement and answer these questions because government actually there is a path for everyday people and people without resources to seize the reins of government. It, it's imperfect, it's corporately captured, but there's still a path. And so government is a, a vehicle that if we commandeer, um, we could do really big things. And we it has the capacity to take on some of the questions that we're trying to answer. And so the, the ideal vehicle to be able to govern is a political party. And that's really what brought me to the Working Families Party.
1: Thanks. Um- you know, It's not a good feeling to be part of a social movement and uh, set the stage for uh, some new change to occur and then realize that it's some of the worst people in the world who get to sit at the table and actually eat, like Taser International. I mean, we have our own version of that uh, with the Green New Deal uh, that you and I both did a ton of work yeah. to uh, uh, help um, spur and promote. And, um you know, there's been some good that has come out of that. Uh, and also, uh, some of the worst people in the world, but fossil capitalists, even some green capitalists who are not really our friends, um, have now taken that whole thing in a, in terms of what we actually won through the inflation reduction act, um, to do a lot of bad. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I I don't want to, I don't want to do that again. (laughs) I want to be able to set the agenda and then win on the solution. So I'm with you on that and I think there's a lot of people who are somewhere between your age and my age who went through this last 15 decade 15 years of uh you know movement uprising um who have learned some version of that lesson which is why I think the notion of party building is really uh, high on the agenda now uh for a lot of people uh, on on the US left um but let's talk about what it means to build a party the 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 working families party describes itself as "Quote building a multiracial party of working people to transform our country." What, in your de- definition, Maurice, is a party, and is WFP a party, or is it in the process of becoming a party?
0: Great, great question. Um, I'm going to answer it in a few ways. Well, let me answer the the last part first, because the the last part is the WP a party, or if it's a process, if it's in process of being a party? The answer is yes. (laughs) Right. And, um, because a party in some way is a process. Like when I talk about governing power, governing power, isn't a, like a static destination. It's a process. Governing is a process. And so, you know, you know, if you're, let's just, you know, whoever's listening to this, you probably live in a city or town that has a city council or a town council or whatever. Um, let's just say if progressives win one seat in that city council or town council, progressives or the left or whoever aren't governing, right? But they have more governing power than they would have had if they didn't have that seat. And the next cycle, maybe you'll get another seat. You don't have a majority yet, right? So governing power and governing and being a party is, is, is a a process that um, doesn't necessarily have a destination, but, to answer your question, I'll answer your question in two ways. Our definition of party is not limited to, because people ask us, because we're actually legally and fiscally a political party in Oregon, New York, and Connecticut, and we leverage the power of fusion voting um, and the fusion law in those states in order to do that. So sometimes people ask us, well, is is, is your Definition of party relate to fusion, and because that doesn't—that's not true everywhere. And it's like, well, no, uh, fusion is very helpful. It's a tool, um, but state by state by state, the election law is very very different. And the thing that connects everything that we do, and we operate in twenty states, we have party structures in more than a dozen states. Um, the 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 thing that connects all of all of our work is the fact that. Parties ultimately are people who are freely assembling, coming together. Their main intervention is electoral work. Um, that work is cohered by some sort of agenda, and that agenda is aligned with a a coherent ideology. And so, when that all of those things are coming together, like you're a party. Um, but I think it's worth going a little bit deeper. We also believe that party is infrastructure, and so. Every single election, we're building more and more independent, working families party infrastructure. Um, And there's many different categories of infrastructure. But any party has its own distinct brand, has its own distinct set of issues, its own distinct ideology. Any party has its own distinct donor base, its own distinct candidates, its own distinct candidate pipeline its own distinct data infrastructure that is distinct from other parties. And so we build from the ground up our own data infrastructure. We, we support efforts to have movement-owned uh, infrastructure so that the movement actually is owning the means of political mm-hmm. production. Um, and so that infrastructure can't be taken away from us. Um, it's not owned by like private capital, all this, all those sorts of things. And so cycle after cycle... Um, we're building the capacity to actually uh, be a third force in American politics. The last thing I'll say around that third force piece is that on top of building a party, we're also building a center of gravity. And this is important because parties are not static, right? Let's just take, for example, in recent memory, um, we saw how the Republican Party has been captured by the MAGA, white Christian nationalists, Force center of gravity and mm-hmm. pulled it into its nexus. And so, even those those people were always part of the, or, or not always, but for generations, part of the the Republican um, the, the Republican coalition. Those entities and those voters weren't at the center. They weren't shot callers, and those voters didn't necessarily command control over the the Republican primaries. But that's true now. So it shows that. That um, parties can can move. Like we could take another example. And look at look at how the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton moved to the right. Or I mean, if you want to take a big historical example, well, you know, back in the day, originally the Republican Party was considered the left party, and the Democratic Party was considered the right mm-hmm. party. And you know, my the trivia I always use with folks is like when I ask folks like oh, which which American party did did Karl Marx most identify with when he was alive? You know, most people don't realize it was the Republican Party, right? So it shows that political parties are not static. They can move, they can even move left to right and right to left and all types of things. And so I, based on that analysis, on top, top of building this infrastructure, we're also building a center of gravity that could pull our entire politics closer to working people. We're building a a labor working people poll in American politics. And over the next like 25 years, our job is to make that a very strong third force in American politics. Right now, there's a very clear uh, right Christian nationalist force. There's a pretty clear center left, center right, sort of neoliberal Mm consensus-ish force. I say ish because, you know, they're questioning the 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 tenets of neoliberalism in some ways, so I don't want to I want to be precise, and we we believe that there needs to be a very strong labor poll that is distinct uh, from those two other forces. Uh, so so we're both organizing that pole and organizing a party and infrastructure um, state by state by state locality by locality on a granular level it um, to build around mm-hmm. that pole that so that's that's what we're building. That's our definition of Mm -hmm. a party. Um, And our assessment is that party building takes time. Building something like a third force in American politics takes a lot of effort. And um, it's something that we think can be done. It's something that we think, you know, is within our power to do, but it requires a level of discipline and North Star focus in order to make happen. The type of discipline that, you know, the far right, for example, I think, had like, you know, we're now like, more than fifty years after the roe decision, you know the, that the the far right developed infrastructure capacity had a strategic North star over fifty years and mm-hmm. we're experiencing the result of that and so I think one of the things that's also true is that the left has been deprived of through a lot of like very specific targeted efforts has been deprived of organization mm-hmm. over generations and Our ideas are really popular Um, in moments of of great contradiction. um, The left is able to show up in large numbers and these movement moments happen. Um, We we have a a lot on our side, but we're missing um, the durable and and the resilient organization to be able to, to leverage all of the things that we have. And that's the work, I think, of... Of years, of maybe even decades, and you know, again, like there's features that are are way above my understanding or perception that could accelerate that. But I think if we if we have a decades long approach, which requires a certain level of focus, rigor, consistency, um, uh, it's going to require, like you know, you talked about cadre is going to require some cadre. Um, if we have that focus, then we'll be able to take take full advantage of and leverage the moments that might allow us to accelerate. So I can't say when we'll be at a place where that third force and the third party will be around that third force, but I have a blueprint that at at Working Families Party we've developed and that we're attempting to execute cycle after cycle after cycle.
1: So these two objectives of building the party and building the center of gravity are related but distinct. And there are lots of um, other uh, groups who may be thinking they're trying to do either um, one or the other. Like um, if you were trying to build a center of gravity um, but not building a third party and waiting, the theory might be that we're just going to realign um, the Democratic Party uh, to become more of of a progressive labor party. Um, and there's not going to be the need for a third party because we're going to build a center of gravity and the Democrats will end up um, uh, being that thing. Um, are you convinced that um, that realignment strategy is not the way, which is why you are explicitly building uh, a a third party in waiting? Or is uh, there some ambiguity here where you think maybe the Democratic Party could Um, uh, take on, you know, a a dramatically different brand and identity and be accountable to working class people, but maybe not. And if it ends up not going that way, or there's a crack up in the two party system, you want to have the option. You want to have the infrastructure as the working families party to be able to step in, in that moment, even if you're not sure if that option will, uh, end up needing to be exercised. Um, So
0: there's a debate inside the WFP about the looking at our current time, place, and conditions, what the Democratic Party um, as a vehicle can do or can't do. Um, But the role that we play, we play this role that I think is is very nuanced because because of the nature of the very rigid first-past-the-post two-party system um, which is just true. It's real. It's a material reality of today. We play a factional role inside of the Democratic Party coalition, right? And like this is another example of force, right? The Democratic Party has a has a gravitational force that is pulling all of these entities around its orbit. Just like gravity, you don't have to agree with gravity to have it keep you uh, it's on the ground. It's math and right? game
1: theory. It's like, like it, it- is the, what yes. It is.
0: You know, so flat earthers are, are also held to the ground, just like me and you. Right. It doesn't really matter. And so, like, there's a lot of people who are part of that center of gravity and part of the, who, like, have a lot of critiques, might even, like, dislike the Democratic Party it Just is what it is. Right. Um, and so oftentimes we operate inside of that coalition. We operate inside of that coalition as part of the big, you know, Cheney to Chomsky United Front that agree that fascism is bad right? Like we're, we're in that. Um, and there are people inside the party and, and other folks who think that the, um, democratic party is reformable, redeemable, flexible, and through organizing can be the labor poll party of our dreams. And we just, we, the, the work that we have to do as a movement is factional inside the democratic party. There are people who believe that. because the Democratic Party includes large columns of organized capital that at, at a certain point um, that um, the, the contradictions will create a rupture. And if under the best conditions with all the great factional organizing inside the Democratic Party, at some point, something's gonna give, right? And so, you know, both arguments are compelling for different reasons. We're building independent infrastructure and an independent party uh, vehicle because in both scenarios, building that independent party infrastructure actually advantages both of those Mm -hmm. scenarios. So the people who are like dedicated to moving uh, moving the Democratic Party and organizing it factionally, having the WFP as an independent party vehicle helps make that happen. For people who are actually like waiting for there to be the rupture, well, when that rupture happens, people are going to need a home. People are going to need infrastructure. People are going to need like state by state vehicles that are ready to roll in order to capture them. And so, in both eventualities, uh, when we game out both of those those possibilities, um, we've we've organized a long term sort of path to power that you know, allows our infrastructure to be useful for both of those, both of those possibilities.
1: Interesting. Um, yeah, it, it makes sense to me. Um, Cause either way, the work you got to do now is, is the same. Uh, and it's about being flexible about yeah, the ballot it, line, way. seeking independence in every opportunity you have to claim it. Um, and then engage in politics such as it is. Uh, each each election cycle.
0: Yeah, and, and the one thing I, I, I'd offer is that, and the reason why we put a focus on organization is the one way that I think uh, would be a mistake is if we just offer the Democratic Party as an institution our votes because we are rational actors and we're afraid of, and you know we have a grounded fear of the potential for authoritarianism without building our own independent organization then you know we're engaged in a united front strategy with factions that we agree on like the big goal which is like deprive the right wing and maga from governance but then we haven't we haven't created the structures to like stand up for our faction right. in that coalition. And then we end up feeling really, really disappointed when we like in earnest show up and do our part in that united front effort. And then afterwards feel like we got the short end of the stick, which is why it's important that we participate principally and collaboratively in that united front effort, but in a manner that that builds independent, movement, power.
1: Rather than just doing the liberal's job for
0: him. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergence mag subscriptions are pay what you can but at 10 bucks a month you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism and if you can't afford it right now don't worry all our shows will be free for you to enjoy you can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade thank you so much for listening
1: tell me about um wfp's governance model as it stands now, in, in New York, you got started as an alliance of unions and community organizations with those various stakeholders represented on a governing board, is my understanding. In, in more recent years, um, some of the more establishment-leaning unions have have left the party. Uh, other organizations have joined, um, and you've made some steps, I think, both in New York and nationally, towards implementing an individual membership model. And I I may be oversimplifying it, but I'm really a little unclear on where it all stands now. So uh, uh, recognizing that there's state WFPs and then there's the national WFP. um, How is uh, WFP governed? How are major decisions made? And um, what part of that is still in formation?
0: Sure. Um, Well, like I'm gonna answer this the way I would answer the last question. It's constantly information, right, <laughs> right. Uh, but but because um, it's a process, right. But but more specifically, um, most decisions that people identify as WFP making a decision um, happens on the local level, state by state by state by state, and each state, um, each chartered state, has something called a state committee, which is um, in most states a grouping of of independent democratic entities like labor unions or grassroots people's organizations and activists. They come together and they make decisions on endorsements. And most of our endorsements are non-controversial. Um, sometimes they are. They're like Sometimes there's like two pro- progressives in a race or um, there's you know, uh, a really progressive person, but it's unclear what their path to victory is, or we have limited resources and there's like five excellent candidates, but we only have enough resources to really throw down in two places and all these things. Um, those are the people who are entrusted in figuring out the nuances and coming ultimately coming to a decision on those things. And those decisions aren't made discreetly the big decision that those people make locally is struggling uh, and developing a long-term path to power. So in every place where we have a a, a chartered state, we also have a a path to governing power that isn't just about getting Democrats elected. It's actually about creating the conditions where we, our movement, progressives, people on the left, can govern Um, and that path to power is not just something that... It, there's, no, there's no path to power at WFP that is like, next cycle, we're going to govern the state. Um, but each path to power is based on a very sober material assessment of the power that we have, the power that we need, geographic and demographic realities, the capacity that labor might have or grassroots organizations might have, the power of our movements. Um, and so that really informs on the local level how people make these decisions. Um, you know, it's the job of, of, of the staff of the WFP to help organize the container and the conditions for folks to be able to make those decisions in a thoughtful way, uh, to make those decisions and struggle in a way that is generative um, and to build very strong tables that are both powerful and fair because in, in, in any decision of consequence, there will be people who are be on one side or, or another. And it's critical in that decision-making process that people leave with more connection to the political vehicle. Um, and so that's state by state by state. Most of WFP decision-making is happening on that level. There is a national committee, and the national committee is in part... Uh, made up of, you know, just like there's the RNC and DNC, this is the WFNC, right? And so the National Committee is is made up of delegates from each state. We also have national member organizations. Um, and so, you know, that includes the labor union, CWA and SCIU. It includes organizing networks, CPD, People's Action. It includes uh, United We Dream Action, SIRG, Standard for Racial Justice. It includes Mijente. Um, and, you know... Uh, the national committee uh, makes decisions if there's interest from uh, from other national organizations about its membership. So we, the national committee could grow depending on the the current national committee's desire to bring on new membership and other things. But it's a reflection of what's happening locally and also um, the national organizations that um, agree to be building the WFP. And we are a hybrid party, so it is a feature. Of the WFP, that we are both um, a coalition party, which means our members are institutions like labor unions and people's organizations, and we have individual members who are activist members who are who are part of the WFP as well.
1: So I want to ask about that. Why um, is the hybrid model the one that um, you have chosen but also continue to double down on and, and invest in, um, as opposed to... a a, a purely coalitional model or a purely member activist, individual member model?
0: Yeah, so, you know, WP is 25 years old, so we've arrived at this through our development. There are advantages and there are aspects of power that come with coalition power, right? we need the capacity to be able to like let's just say we want to we want to run a primary and win a mayoral primary we need the capacity and the resources that and the infrastructure that comes with institutions that are grounded in a place that have maybe you know like labor unions that have like tens of thousands of members that could knock on doors and through their member dues be uh, offer political um, political donations to a political project. And like, if we're serious about power, uh, that is an essential piece that, that institutional power also institutions. Um, I think in a good way, um, are thinking long-term are thinking are, are a little bit more averse to, to risk sometimes that that could be very helpful in the makeup of a, a strategic conversation. Um, um, but there's limitations to being only institutional, right? And we recognize that there is a value of having a mass base of activists um, that go through a leadership development process that develop in their sophistication and strategic acumen that could offer insights uh, and push back against some some sometimes like rigid institutional thinking. Um, and we actually think that creating the conditions where there's a healthy balance of those and there's a struggle that is like a healthy struggle and where individuals and institutions share a, a political project we we see that as like kind of like the sky's the limit in terms of the power that we could access because we have limited institutional power in our movement like i said like we, we're we're the byproduct of of decades and decades of decades of of dismantling of progressive institutions, um, and so it's to me the there's a, a marriage of two holes that that are essential that and it requ- that marriage is a a, caref- a careful sort of delicate marriage. And so, when we charter new states, we allow folks to come together however they want to come together in order to build that state. Um, but one of the Frameworks that we keep in place because the bylaws of each state chapter are different because states are different, and we want to we want to make sure that we're not like building a cookie cutter party that the party reflects the character mm-hmm. of that state. But the th- the the ground rules for building the WFP is that you need to figure out how these two pieces the the coalition character and the mass character come together and make decisions and. Are respected as as equal parts of a whole.
1: So I, uh, you and I have both spent a lot of time um, in the coalition world of nonprofit organizations. We've had some adventures together in that space, and um, you (laughs) know, uh, at at times um, I I end up feeling like table uh, for me is a dirty word (laughs) because there's so many tables of organizations, it can be like a nesting Whoa. doll of uh, Russian nesting dolls of organiz- of tables sitting inside tables, sitting inside tables. And um, really the defining feature of a table often is that it's generated from the top down because some money is attached. And there's a national or state funder mm-hmm. who wants to see something happen in a given state or on a given issue, and they dangle some money out there. And they say, hey, everybody, come to the table and get some of this money. And then everybody fights oh, about the money yeah. sitting around the table. And really people yeah. approach it in a kind of extractive way where it's like, well, I've got to come here because I need to figure out how to get the, you know, how to get $50,000 for my organization or whatever it is. And it can really lead yes. to some um, uh, destructive and. You know, negative some dynamics, frankly, where people come and they're supposed to be building alliance. But really what they're doing is fighting over the money and trying to uh, deliver as little as possible um, because they're just trying to do their existing work, build their own organization, which is everybody's prerogative is to try to build their own organization. But uh, so these are some of the, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, how do you prevent that from happening when you charter a state working families party? <laughs> how can this be more than a, a table yes. in the negative sense and actually um, be start becoming becoming a party uh, that is more than the sum of its parts?
0: It's that's a great question, right? And um, our current process is informed by every bad experience everybody's had at any coalition <laughs> or any table or, you know. Um, <laughs> and so number one, um, I, I feel like with w- what I've learned, <laughs> what I've learned about like coalitions and tables and other things, there's this coalition or table math and I get it. It's like, oh, well, we could, you know, if if the more partners that we add to this, the the stronger we are, like. <laughs> a 20 group table is weaker than a 40 group table so let's like make it as big as possible right and i think what ends up happening is like you end up creating this dynamic where somehow 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1, plus one plus one equals three. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because like everybody actually isn't aligned. Some people are simply there because one of their rivals is there. And so they're kind of like lurking. Some people are there just to kind of extract money or maybe prestige or whatever. Sometimes there's organizations are there are there because they're tokens. It's like, oh man, we really need a black group. Let's let's call up this group. And, and that group is at that coalition and they they could perceive their lack of power, so they feel weak. You know, it's like all of the worst practices of like the nonprofit industrial complex and all that stuff, right? Um, so the way that we approach it, number one, you know, we as the staff of WFP don't like go into a state, right? Like genu- uh, 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 what what generally happens is that folks will hear about the model, will learn about the model, will... will somehow see an alignment between WFP as a political party and the work that they're doing, and and they'll come to us. So what I say is that WFP is organized and developed by people inside a, a state. So that's number one. It, like, um, we we don't we don't grow because like there's some WFP directorate somewhere at national WFP looking at a map of the United States and deciding like, all right, we need to like put a chess piece here. So that's one thing, right? Um and the model wouldn't work any other way because WFP requires a lot of effort. So you have to really be mm-hmm. into it, right? Um, and it and and from the extractive piece, that's another thing. It's like it, there is a value of building the WFP. And I would argue that um, it's a very, very, very good investment if you're serious about building power and you're serious about building independent left progressive power. But that value... you can't extract it in a year or six months or whatever. (laughs) So it's like, there's no point if you're seeking some sort of like play for your organization to build a W it's just not, it's not like, it's not going to happen that way. Right. There, there is significant value for organizations and their power, like as individual organizations and, and as an ecosystem and as a left, but it's not easily extractable from WFP because you sit around a place and, you know, you send one of your staff people at, to a thing, whatever, you'll be like, very, very disappointed. This is
1: not the short <laughs> so me, you're looking for. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just not going to work. And so, and, and we, it's, it's our job to be able to discern people who, who actually really understand the, the, and get and believe in the ideological project of building an independent left that could govern. And so we rather work with fewer people are more deeply ideologically aligned uh, than a lot of people who are seeing some sort of like transactional hustle or whatever. And so that also will play into who we choose, right? So instead of like every single organization and every single labor union, it'll be the aligned labor and community partners that are showing up and actually have this crazy idea that we could build collectively, our own party infrastructure. We could actually do it. And there's an advantage to us doing it through WFP because WFP has been for 25 years building its own distinct brand and has its own distinct data infrastructure and its dis- distinct candidate pipeline and everything else. And we don't have to come up with some bespoke way of doing it. We we could work with comrades who are trying to do it all over the country, right? Um, and so you know, we're in conversations with folks in a lot of states and there's a lot of excitement for the model, I think, because we're very rigorous and we take our time in building WFP and we're not seeking meteoric Mm -hmm. growth and we're not entertaining any individual that says they want to build WFP somewhere and just saying like, yeah, just download the WFP uh, charter kit and go ahead. Like we're asking serious questions about their assessments of power and strategy, and we're making sure that they have a grounded assessment of their own power in relationship to other centers of power, right? And so it's a process, but one that ultimately is an ideological project more than anything else. Um, one that certainly for individuals and institutions can provide real power. You know, like I, I talked to Karen Sharp at Citizen Action, uh, she started Citizen Action of New York, and she's one of the Sis Asher of New York is one of the founders of the New York party, which was the original party. And she talks about how, as somebody who was building an independent people's organization, how being one of the co-chairs of the New York WFP gave her and her organization significant power. Because even though she had bases of power in Schenectady and Albany and, you know, certain places, she didn't have a base everywhere. However, elected officials everywhere would attempt to engage her because they knew that she was one of the co-chairs of the Mm -hmm. WFP. And she could leverage that by getting them to take seriously citizens' actions, like statewide Mm -hmm. priorities, right? And so, um, again, it's building the WFP is a crazy thing to do unless you actually Mm -hmm. believe
1: in it. Mm -hmm. Good answer. Yeah. So I want to ask you about um, uh, the the DSA and WFP. Um, uh, that's another, another party, uh, or, or party information that, uh, some people are spending a lot of energy, um, to build because they really believe in it. And, um, you know, I'm a dues paying member of DSA. I'm, I'm also a dues paying individual member of the working families party. Um, and, uh, you know, this is sort of my philosophy in general these days is to be, uh, Multiply affiliated because I I don't think we know exactly uh, what the full answer is, and so I prefer to like be a member of the ecosystem. So I I I, I proudly join um, multiple organizations, um, but I, I hear a lot of shade flying in both directions between partisans of these two groups, you know, and um, I I think uh, from the DSA partisans, uh, I think the critique of working families I hear is for being foundation funded and thus beholden to uh, the big funders who don't necessarily share our ideology in full, whereas DSA is fully member funded. Um, DSA also uh, critiques Working Families Party for uh, sometimes for this um, hybrid uh, uh, governance structure, for being coalitional in structure, and thus beholden to the more um, cautious or liberal organizations that are, are part of the coalition, whereas DSA is only accountable to its members. And in general, I think the thrust of the argument is that WFP is structured in a way that requires it to make um, too many concessions to the democratic political establishment and the political status quo, whereas DSA is able to be more boldly independent and left-wing. And this even comes into the way that then the two organizations brand and identify themselves where, you know, you talk about, um, working families and working people and, 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 labor power, um, uh, being progressive. Whereas DSA would, uh, talk about, you know, working class power, class power, and would uh, proudly identify as socialists rather than, um, progressive, which is a bit of a more ambiguous term. So, um, what is your response to this critique from our comrades in DSA? Um, What would be some of your assessment of DSA going back the other way? And how should all of us on the left be thinking about the difference between DSA and WFP?
0: Okay, well, let me try to take this piece by piece. And I think the first way I would respond is with a lot of generosity, right? Like, I think ultimately you should engage me, critique me, evaluate me based on my strategy, right? And, um, you know, we've developed a strategic sensibility at WFP based on our assessment of the time, place, and conditions. And the reality is, like, history will also ultimately be a judge to determine whether or not the things that that we decided were the main premises, the main contradictions, the main struggle, whatever, were like were actually the main struggle, mm-hmm. right? Like, like we can't actually discern that from where we stand. And so, I approach everything we do with a lot of humility. Like, we could be right. I believe we're right, but we could also be wrong. And um, Malika, my son, he'll have to like <laughs> he'll have to ultimately deal with the fact that of whether or not, uh, daddy's project was like, uh, was accurately assessing the conditions or not, you know, but, you know, we, we do what we do based on like, I think like a commitment to a set of, a set of hypotheses. And I want people who are on the left to be running their plays. Um, and they should be different. People should have different hypotheses. And I think that that's a good thing. And then that's how we'll ultimately learn. And, you know, may the best strategy win. Like like that is a good thing in the world. So I just I just really wanted mm-hmm. to say that. And then in terms of more specifically, DSA and WFP, um, look, I, I think that it's true that there are individuals inside of DSA that offer critiques of WFP. I'm sh- there's individual individuals inside of WFP that offer critiques of DSA. Um, I think we need to learn on the left how to approach critiques with generosity. I think there's critiques can be grounded they can be ungrounded um, but it's information, right And I don't think the presence of critiques um, in itself is a, a problem. I think you know that's how we learn and I just think we have to kind of build mm-hmm. that muscle. Um, there's disputes inside mm-hmm. of WFP. There's disputes inside of DSA, right? And you know, we wouldn't be a, a left if we didn't have these um, these disputes or these differences. And you know, sometimes like intense disputes over over really minor minor tactical differences and other things. Like we wouldn't wouldn't be a left if that wasn't true. But I do want to I don't want to exaggerate the scale of those disputes. Uh, I think, um, you know. Like the DSA, DSA and, and WP, I think, have been evidence to like be able to like to collaborate in really, really deep ways. You know, I'm thinking Tiffany Caban in New York. That was a collaboration where our two organizations threw down very heavily. Janice Lewis-George uh, in D.C., um, Elizabeth Epps, the Elizabeth mm-hmm. Epps race in Denver, Uh, because there's people like you who are, you know, who share sort of dual custody of the, <laughs> <laughs> these two organizations, like, <laughs> or have dual citizenship, or whatever, you, whatever uh, <laughs> however you want to call it, right? And so, you know, and there's a lot of examples, actually, of the coming together of the power that the DSA is manifesting on the local level and what the WP is manifesting. You know, a, another really good example, very, very recently, Philadelphia. So Philadelphia, um, the DSA... Joined a coalition that included labor unions, included grassroots organizations, included the the coalition power of Mm -hmm. WFP um, around Kendra Brooks and Nicholas O'Rourke. And they are independent WFP Mm -hmm. members who are now at at large seats in the city council. One, I want to specify
1: for the listeners, on a Working Families Party ballot line. And Working Families Party is now the number two most represented party on the Philadelphia City Council, which owes to some... Uh, unique laws that guarantee a second party representation. So basically WFP kicked out the Republicans from the city council in Philadelphia and now are the, the minority party uh, on the council, which is pretty cool. Um, But you're saying that DSA was de facto a member of the working families party electoral coalition in Philadelphia.
0: Yep. Deep, deeply involved in that. And, um, and, and, we were proud of that partnership, and it, it resulted in this historic victory. Uh, like, I mean, and anybody who's serious about building an independent left political party that could actually contend, because the, the Democrats spent a load of money against us as well, because, we, you know, we knocked off the Republicans, but the Demo- both the Republicans and Democrats were, like, not happy about that. So who could actually contend against the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in certain instances and win? um you know look no further than what we were able to do in Philadelphia uh through the WP and in part with D- DSA support right and so you know I- i'll also say like i want to go deeper around this because i do think there's there's differences right i think there's like functional differences there's um uh, strategic differences and 2018 2018 is a good example in uh, new york new york 2018 um there there was a faction of right-wing real estate backed Democrats that actually they they removed themselves from the Democratic caucus and created a new caucus called the IDC the independent Democratic caucus and because they did that they deprived the Democrats of a functioning majority and meant that the Republicans had a majority in the state Senate um, and we um, recruited and supported challengers to all eight of those folks and they were, Progressive challengers who came from those districts, and we knocked out, we wiped away six of the eight in one swoop in one election, and um, you know they they those candidates weren't supported by the DSA, uh, they weren't DSA members, um, but we we believe, and I think it's materially true that the work that we did as a coalition in defeating the uh, IDC. Created the conditions where it unlocked like a lot of legislative victories, including victories that were top priority for mm-hmm. DSA, right? So this is an example of WFP doing something distinct from the DSA, but being, but I think creating the conditions that made more things possible, including for the DSA, right? Um, again, complementary, right? Different but complementary, right? And a more recent example we're going to be on the on the independent side raising a bunch of money and also on the coordinated side working very closely directly with the candidate to support congressional champions that came out very early for a ceasefire that are being targeted by apac where they're going to spend like 100 million of far far right money against our people and you know in one example one of the most recent you know upcoming examples Summer Lee. So Summer Lee, for um, a number of reasons, um, is no longer associated with the DSA, right? WFP is throwing down with mm-hmm. Summer Lee, right? And we think that that is a good thing for, for the left, that there there are institutions throwing down with Summer Lee um, and pushing back against the far right, even as for for a number of reasons, that strategy or aligning with Summer in that way doesn't make sense for the DSA. Um, or it doesn't make sense on either side. Um, we think it's a good thing that the WP um, is a institutional partner of Summer in that fight, in the fight against the, the far right, and um, and their very cynical uh, strategy of, of using APAC as a laundering vehicle to be able to advance their agenda, like in the Democratic primary. And then and then, like, I want to talk about this this question about like the proximity to the Democratic Party, right? And it comes up a lot in New York because I talked about fusion Mm -hmm. voting. So like in fusion voting, um, we, we often are endorsing people who are champions and we're endorsing DSA members. Like there's many, um, legislators that are DSA members and also see WFP as a, as a political home. And I would, I would just say that like some of the sharpest, most strategic elected officials are DSA members, right? Um, but um, we also endorse people who aren't aren't aligned in a lot of ways, or people might not even like see them as being progressive, right? And you know, like people might say, "So why would you award this person with the ballot line?" Then, like, doesn't it dilute your brand? Why would you even do that? And we think it for us, it actually matters if a Democrat or a Republican, right, has. Control of Congress. Like if this Speaker of the House is a Democrat or Republican, we believe that that matters enough for us to endorse somebody who isn't 100% aligned or may not be very much aligned. Because, on top of electing people who are WFP champions and come through our pipeline, a strategic imperative is depriving go- uh, Republicans from governing power. Wow. And so based on our strategy we're very open and and like and 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 down with the idea of strategically making endorse, endorsements to prevent republicans from having, having governing power to create a governing opportunity in this very limited two party space for democrats so that progressives can mm-hmm. govern right so these are different strategic imperatives that mean we take up different space in the ecosystem and play different roles that, that ultimately I think are are in some ways complementary, right? Um, the one you said something about funding that I, I, I want to kind of address yeah, I, uh, directly because I think yeah, it's important. Yes. So let's go back to the summer lead thing, right? Um, APAC spent $32 million last cycle against our folks. They announced they're going to spend $100 million. We don't know how much they'll actually spend. Organized people and organizing is our superpower, and it's how we beat organized capital again and again and again. And we need some money, right? And so the WFP raises money from individual activists in in the thousands, like grassroots activists, from from dues from our institutions like labor unions and uh, people's organizations. And we also take donations from from large donors, right? And we do so, and because we think it's important that even though we can't go dollar for dollar against AIPAC uh, with Summer relief, we think it's important that we're part of the coalition that could actually put together a significant amount of money so that we could be competitive with money. When we're competitive with money against organized capital, then our organizing could seize mm-hmm. the day. And um, so it's not like a, it's a feature of our work that we, we proudly a- align our strategies, and then we seek out resources in order to make that strategy happen from small donors who give five and ten dollars every month to large donors that could give five thousand or fifty thousand or even more um because we need to be in the in the game as it is, and the game as it is is one where one entity could announce that they're going to spend
1: a hundred million dollars, especially at the congressional level and I think that's what we've learned from yep. this experience of the squad. Okay. I want to take one step further into these intra-left debates here. And this next question, I'm sure it's one that you might want to put behind you, but it is a bit of a sore spot that I think still fosters mistrust of of WFP from some corners on the left. So I want to give you a chance to address it. Um, In 2020, um, the Working Families Party uh, famously endorsed Elizabeth Warren for president, um, while other prominent Left progressive organizations, including the DSA, including Sunrise Movement, People's Action, um, the Center for Popular Democracy, and you know a number of others, um, I- endorsed Bernie Sanders. Now, of course, Warren had other endorsers as well, but many of the organizations you are proximal to um, uh, were with Sanders, and WFP endorsed Warren. Now, the exact selection process through which Warren was endorsed was. Um, not fully transparent, and, and I think among some that was sort of weaponized in a bad faith way. But uh, nevertheless, it it wasn't fully transparent and contributed to the perception that WFP was a you know a bureaucratic sort of operation rather than a democratic mass party. And um, I think for some people, you know, that was um, was was a big blow, uh, and um, it inhibits some people's willingness even now to see. WFP as a potential political home where they can organize and have their politics reflected because they felt like it was a big stakes decision. The decision in their eyes was wrong. And then the process was also suspect. So I'm curious what you would say about that episode now, both the process and the result and what you've learned from it.
0: Okay. Well let's, so I have no problem going back. (laughs) I think context matters. So like, yeah, let's, we could we we could we could go back all day, right? Um, and you know, like when we looked at the field in twenty twenty, I you know, I remember that moment. We saw Sanders and Warren both as as real exemplars and and sort of giants and leaders in in our movement. And they were leaders that we've been supportive of and we were fans of, and also both of them had bases of support inside of the WFP. And even before Bernie announced his run in 2016, um, that only came after an effort that we were central to, to draft Warren to run in 2016. Mm-hmm. And and uh, a lot of folks were a part of that. And then we went on to be one of the early supporters of, of, of uh, Senator Sanders in 2016. And, and in 2016 when we made that endorsement, you know, the process we used at that time, uh, you know, I think it's important to note, by the way, was essentially identical to the process we used in 2020 that resulted in a Warren endorsement, like essentially, essentially identical. And the aim of the process, um, because it's important for for folks to understand through our strategy and through long-term what we're building, the aim of the process was to give a voice to all parts of the WFP, which that means the institutional members who are real members. And those those members are, are people's organizations, labor unions that have their own internal democracy and grassroots organizations, and are, are activists, individual members. And this is, by the way, how many parties, many left parties in the lots of the world, you know, function. So you talked about our hybrid character there's there's a number of parties that have a hybrid character that include like labor unions and other folks and also have card carrying individual members and um and so the the vote was given an equal share to individual members and to the national committee and the national committee i want to be clear is comprised of of delegates that represent each state mm-hmm. chapter right so the national committee isn't just these sort of like top-down bureaucrats in, like, these stodgy organizations. They're actually, like, representatives from our state chapters, and our state chapters include a lot of activists and individuals who struggle together on these things, right? And the national member organizations in WFP, like, again, include some of the groups that you talked about. So include Center for Popular Democracy and People's Action, which is also to say that it was contentious The process was contentious inside of WFP um, because there were individuals that were deeply pro-Warren. There were individuals that were deeply pro-Sanders. There were organizations that were pro-Sanders and Warren, and there were various state chapters that were leaning in one direction or, or another. And there were arguments inside of WFP through this process on policy, debating the different policy platforms, on strategy debating the different paths to power, like every kind of argument you could imagine was occurring through this process. And, you know, like I'll give a, one thing that happened was like, you know, like when Warren was campaigning to, uh, for the support of the Working Families Party, for example, like when she endorsed Kendra Brooks, I mentioned Kendra Brooks, we ran Kendra and Nick for first time in 2019. When she endorsed Kendra Brooks, in 2019, she was one of the first endorsers of Kendra Brooks before she had almost any support anywhere. And the WFP members in our Pennsylvania chapter, they noticed that. And, you know, similarly, when she endorsed Jessica Cisneros, right? And when Jessica Cisneros was challenging Henry Cuellar in, in South Texas, our Texas chapter noticed that. And they have delegates, they have delegates that go to the National Committee, right? So... Uh, so th- th- there was a lot of debate, a lot of questions, and both both uh, candidates had real bases of power, and um, and there was, like, real struggle. And, you know, I think also I have to say that the rules of the process were quite clear to all of the candidates, right? I just want want to say that. And they knew where the votes were. They knew how to organize the party and where the votes were and everything else. And the debates in some chapters were agonizing because people really, truly loved both of these candidates. And in the end, the the vote actually was pretty close. And I think the the closeness of the vote reflects the fact that there was a lot of struggle and a lot of uh, authentic respect for both of these candidates in our various chapters, in the the various national committee members, with our activists. So I, I just say for any of the people who are listening to this, um, who preferred Bernie, and wonder if they should join the WFP today, my answer would be absolutely. Because at WFP, you will have a voice. You will be in an organization where you could struggle around hard things. And I think the proof is in not the outcome, because everybody's not going to agree on the outcome, but the fact that the coalition held. The coalition that, that is WFP held through that through a very contentious and real and live internal debate and internal struggle. Um, so at the end, people who are deep, deep Bernie partisans stayed with the party. People who are deep, deep Warren partisans who were like elated clearly stayed with the party. And to me, that is evidence that we're building, and I think we've, we continue to build and, and continue to deepen a true authentic space where where. Folks who are aligned with the same strategy can struggle together. And the last thing I'll say on that is, and I think it's an important point, and it's a point um, on how we actually view what we're doing. American politics, I think, very much take take the um, the um, the cast of our very individualized neoliberal sort of. Culture and logic, and so American politics is very entrepreneurial. It's very much like I woke up one day and I'm like, I I think I could do it, and then I make some phone calls and maybe I get some consultants together and I run for something. Right? That's why you meet so many
1: freaking individualists in Congress and state legislatures. That's the one thing they have all in common. Oh,
0: it's it's so hard. It's so mind-numbingly hard to get anything worth doing through a lot of these legislatures. Yes, right and. And we relate, like, oftentimes we relate to them like individuals, and we, we wonder whether or not we could have a bear with this person, or we would like this person, or we trust this person, and maybe we, we consider their, um, their policies and how aligned we are with their policies. You know, I said this earlier in the conversation, you will know me by my strategy, judge me by my strategy. And rarely do we get into strategic conversations, which is why I am so passionate about party building, right? Because parties hold strategy. And I believe that it's strategy as like the overarching container. Underneath that is party. And then through that, you advance your politics and you make endorsements for various candidates. And we endorse close to a thousand candidates every cycle, right? Not, not everyone is as contentious and as like, like, as uh, controversial as like the Warren Bernie endorsement for sure. But every cycle we're endorsing hundreds of candidates. And so um, we're building the muscle for people to make hard decisions and stay part of a political Mm -hmm. vehicle. Right. And stay focused on a political strategy. Um, And, you know, I try to use the analogy of like a, a car in motion, right. A political vehicle in motion. You know, if you're in a car if you're in a car in motion, let's just say if you commandeer the radio and you turn it over to a station that you like, right? You've made a decision, you've turned it over, and now you're playing a song that you like. And let's say there's people who don't like that song. It would be um it would be maybe not grounded if that person jumped out the window of the moving car because they didn't like the song, right? Um, we want to develop that level of North Star alignment as it relates to our our decisions when it comes to an endorsement, right? Uh, When it comes to supporting a candidate, candidate A, candidate B. Ultimately, everything is serving the strategy. And you will have an opportunity to move the needle after that Mm -hmm. song is over. You will have an opportunity in that vehicle to make choices. But if you leave the political vehicle then you won't have an opportunity to make those choices. And I think we need to struggle in our political vehicles. If you believe in the strategy, even if you might disagree with a tactic, because we could move on a tactic, we could evaluate, maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong, we'll learn. And then next time we'll have another tactic. And electoral engagement is a tactic that should serve a larger strategy.
1: Thanks for that. Okay, Maurice, so we've, uh, we're have we running out of time here, so I wanna ask you one more question, which is uh, just to close, um, give us a, an optimistic view, but a grounded view of WFP's development over the rest of the decade. Um, give us a glimpse of uh, the Working Families Party of 2030.
0: Okay, so um, we had our first ever in history national convention in Philadelphia, and at that national convention we attempted to answer the question right it was 25 years we looked we looked back 25 years and we looked forward and our focus like a laser is on governing what governing means is that your ideas are the common sense your ideas are the agenda and then others got to do what they got to do around it like our job is to put our movement in a governing position and we think that in a matter of years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, certainly 20, absolutely 25 years, we will be in a position where our people, our agenda, people on the left, progressives, other folks, can actually govern. Um, and so we're building carefully, step by step, seriously, rigorously, the institutional power, uh, the the candidate pipelines, the movement power, the activist power, the the coalitions in order to do that. And um, when that happens, we believe it's going to unlock a lot of possibility. And that pit in your stomach that you feel, that frustration every presidential election, because we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the candidates, we don't have the power, and we have to make very, very uncomfortable decisions. We believe that the remedy of to that is not something that could happen proximally, but it can happen in a matter of years if we focus on governing.
1: All right, I wanna see it. Uh, This election year is definitely pure agony and we all wish we had a lot more choices. Well, maybe one more choice that we actually believed in. So um, (laughs) here's to a party that can deliver that in the future. Maurice, thank you so much. Um, Really a pleasure talking to you and reconnecting. Um, Thanks for being here. Thank you. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon.